Hello again. I hope that you are all uh, remaining safe, healthy, and joyful. Uh, last week, uh, if you watched the message, you'll know that we started a study through the book of Philippians. And today we will move into the next section of the first chapter. But before we do that, uh, let me pray. Good and gracious God, you are mighty, you are holy, and we love you. We thank you for the opportunity to study your word as we seek to know you more. Open our hearts, clear our minds, and give us peace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you happen to miss last week's message, uh, I just, I'd like to give a, a brief recap. Uh, Philippians is one of the books in the New Testament that we call a Pauline epistle. And, and that's just a, a fancy way of, of saying one of Paul's letters. There are 13 of these letters in the New Testament, and they make up about 25% of it. Uh, Philippians is a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi sometime between 60 to 62 AD. The church at Philippi was the very first church on European soil, and the believers there had a very strong relationship with Paul. They had steadfastly supported Paul on his missionary journeys, and part of the reason for the writing of this letter was was for Paul to thank them for a gift that they had sent to him. Paul was in Rome at this time, under house arrest, waiting to plead his case before Caesar. He had originally been placed under arrest in Jerusalem after the chief priests and a few very high-ranking individuals had accused him of starting riots and, and blaspheming in the Jewish temple. What the priests didn't realize, however, was that Paul was actually a Roman citizen. We mentioned last week that, that certain uh, Roman colonies were granted a very special status uh, that allowed voting rights and uh, the ability to buy and sell, to own property. But most importantly, certain colonies allowed the person born in the colony to be a Roman citizen. Well, Paul was born in the city of Tarsus, which happened to be one of those very special colonies. So Paul was, was a Roman citizen at birth. Anyone who was a Roman citizen had the right to have an appeal before the emperor if they were charged with a crime or any wrongdoing. So Paul appeals to Caesar. And that's how he ends up in Rome awaiting to appear before Caesar Nero. Paul is 5,000 miles away from his friends, sheltering in place. So, you all know that, that preachers love lists. And we especially love lists of words that start with the same letter. So how many of you remember the three R's back in school? Reading, writing, and arithmetic. They definitely took a little poetic license with the spelling, but they came up with something that was easy to remember. Well, on my list today, all of the words actually do start with R. Recognize, realize, and rejoice. See? No cheating. 
Recognize, realize, and rejoice. So, why don't we read our text for today. Open your Bibles to Philippians, and we're going to start reading in chapter 1, verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest, that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of my brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some, indeed, preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel, and the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but but thinking to afflict me in my punishment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So, before we move on, uh, there are just a couple of textual items that I would like to address. In verse 12, uh, the word translated as brothers is actually a plural form used to indicate sibling relationships within a family and includes both male and female. Therefore, the phrase brothers and sisters is entirely proper and I believe implied. I base this belief on two things. One, Paul's ministry had involved women uh, from the very start. In fact, the the church at Philippi was started at a woman's home. Uh, Her name was Lydia, and she was a cloth merchant. The scriptures tell us she was a dealer in purple cloth. You can read all about her in in Acts chapter 16. The second reason for this is that Paul, in 1 Timothy 3.15, refers to the church as God's household which is another way of saying God's family. The next item that that I want to take a quick look at is in verse 13, and it is the phrase imperial guard. This is the famous praetorian guard that we've all heard about. You know, they were the elite of the elite, and they were assigned to protect the emperor. The name is so synonymous with the best of the best that... In the last Star Wars movie, uh, it is what they called the eight elite members of the First Order that had been selected to protect the Supreme Leader, Snoke. So that's your sci-fi geek moment. Uh, And it's also my cue to move into the next section of our study. In verses 12 through 14, the magic word is recognize. Recognize God's hand in our circumstances. Most of the time, uh, having one of your most important people get arrested and imprisoned would be seen as a a huge detriment to your cause. Uh, That's how it usually works. In fact, it's been a primary tactic of of the military for years. Separate a leader from his followers in the hope that in the ensuing chaos and power vacuum, their, their cause will suffer damage. And that was the rationale for example, of toppling Saddam Hussein back in 2003, and even more recently, uh, the actions taken against Osama bin Laden. Take out the leader or the leaders, and the group will eventually cease to exist. 
Now, there is a strong case that, that argues against this tactic because of the potential to, to uh, create a martyr, but that idea of killing the snake by cutting off its head, it, it's, it's still with us, and it's probably not going to go any t- you know, go away anytime soon because it just sounds so logical. However, what Paul's enemies didn't understand was that not even Paul would say that he was the leader. Paul was, by his own estimation, a servant of the gospel, uh, being commanded by a much higher authority. Paul wasn't troubled by the fact that he was imprisoned. He, he wasn't scared that the gospel would fade away and disappear in his absence. He didn't allow himself to become depressed and disappointed over what some would have seen as a as a major setback to his ministry. He comes right out and tells his brothers and sisters that what has happened to him is a good thing. Paul recognizes and accepts that he is where he is because of the will of God. He knows that his life is being measured against the cost that was paid on Calvary's cross. He knows that If he truly wants to follow Jesus, then he must be willing to take up his own cross in order to do so. You know, Paul was not the type to to ask anything of anyone that he would not be willing to do himself. When we talk about Paul's attitudes toward earthly trials and suffering, no one says it better than Paul himself in Romans 8.18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Not even worth comparing. That is how precious the gospel was to Paul. It it didn't matter what happened to him as long as the gospel was preached. The gospel hasn't changed, folks. And it should be just as precious to us. Paul tells his friends that that his being in prison is, is actually serving to advance the gospel, to advance the gospel among the unsaved. Paul, in a classic example of, well, here I am, Lord. What do you want me to do now? He starts sharing the gospel with everyone around him. I mentioned earlier that, that Paul was being watched over by the members of the elite Praetorian Guard. Well, I don't know exactly how they rotated their shifts, But I do know that the guards changed out every four hours. So there was the potential for Paul to talk to up to six guards a day. Now, how often these six were rotated is unknown. But we do know a couple of other things about these guys. According to the historian Tacitus, the number of cohorts was increased from 9 to 12 in in 47 A.D., A cohort was a group of soldiers, and it numbered 1,000 men. So having the number changed from 9 to 12, that meant that there were 12,000, 12,000 Praetorian guards in the barracks in Rome while Paul was in prison. 12,000 guys who, through the rumor mill, probably heard some version of of that strange prisoner that that was in the palace waiting to see the emperor. Can you imagine some of the talk? Yeah, well, I've heard that this guy is Jewish, but, but he's really a Roman citizen. 
Oh, yeah? Well, I heard that he's, he's spreading stories about some new religion that, that worships a guy that was crucified and, and came back from the dead. Oh, yeah? Well, my buddy's cousin was one of the guards in the palace, and he says that that prisoner acts like it's no big deal, that the dude can't wait to talk to the emperor. He told me that this prisoner acts as if what he has to say is more important than his own life. Can you believe that? So that's some speculation, perhaps, of how the rumors may have, have started and made their way back into the barracks. But not, not only were these Praetorian guards involved in the guarding of prisoners. No, they were also charged with escorting uh, foreign dignitaries into the emperor's chamber. Well, perhaps there was an opportunity for some small talk. And, and what better topic for a guard to bring up than that strange prisoner that's in town to see the emperor. And some of the strange things that he's been heard saying. And I don't think that it's too far-fetched to imagine little fragments of the gospel, little fragments of the gospel traveling to distant lands as a result of this rumor and the gossiping. Little fragments that, that might cause someone to pause and to listen in on a conversation that they overhear in the marketplace. Or, or maybe they, they hear someone speaking in their town square and they're suddenly struck with a feeling of familiarity that, that causes them to stop and listen in a little closer. Well, I, that's a bit of speculation, I know. But what we know for sure what we know for certain is that Paul was preaching the gospel for the entire time that he was in Rome. We also know that because of Paul's boldness uh, in witnessing to the unsaved, the gospel was advanced among the saved as well. Paul tells us that among the believers there was an increase in boldness because of his imprisonment. According to what Luke writes in, in Acts 28, the Jewish leaders in Rome, uh, they decided that it was best to simply ignore the fact that, that Paul was right there in their hometown. They just refused to acknowledge the fact that he was even there. So that freed up uh, the fear of Jewish reprisals among the believers. And, and so those, the Christians in Rome took the advantage and they began to preach like never before. They started to preach more frequently and with more confidence. See, Paul recognized that, that God's hand was in his circumstances. Are we ready for the second R word? Realize. The second R word is realize. And, and it guides us to realize that, that there are two types of people in our lives. There are people that are for you and the gospel, and there are those who are going to be against you and against the gospel. Paul expresses these points in verses 15 and 16 in the form of a chiasmus. Now, a chiasmus is a, a rhetorical or a, a literary figure in which words, grammatical constructions, or concepts are repeated in a reverse order, uh, in the same or a, a modified form. And let me give you an example of that. Poetry is the record of the best and happiest moments of the happiest and best minds. 
A chiasmus is formed when the words best and happiest are repeated as happiest and best. In verse 15, Paul mentions that that there are some who preach out of envy and rivalry, but that others preach Christ from goodwill. When he offers reasons for the behaviors, in verse 16, he reverses the order so that good preachers are listed first. And I mention this only to make the point that Paul was a very skilled communicator. You know, most of us, myself included, have, have trouble just getting our words to make sense. Yet here's Paul. He's incorporating advanced techniques to just write a letter. You know, that, that's the kind of thing that I, I imagine Martha Stewart doing when she's writing thank you notes. Paul took great pleasure in knowing that there were people on the outside who were stepping up and who were preaching the gospel because they just wanted to help a brother out. They weren't doing it to bring glory to themselves or or to weaken Paul's authority. They were sincerely preaching the gospel because they knew, they knew that it it was the right thing to do. They could see the price that, that Paul was paying for his faithfulness and out of love for the gospel, and for Paul, they made an effort. They made an effort to take up the slack. Now, on the other hand, there were some rascals that had less than honorable motives for their sudden interest in preaching. Motivated by envy and feelings of rivalry, these guys were, were preaching, but, but they were not doing it to, to help out our, our favorite apostle. Far from it. I mean, Paul regarded their insincere, selfish efforts as a way in which they were trying to to hurt him. Trying to rattle him and and throw him off of his game when he was unable to defend himself and the gospel in person. Now, this, this would have been especially painful to Paul if he had thought that a lesser or a modified gospel was being spread around in his absence. See, at, at one time, there were several factions that preached a gospel that, that wasn't pure. For example, there were a, a group called the Judaizers, who, although they preached a gospel of grace through Jesus, they also required their followers to adhere to the works of the Jewish law. But... Paul doesn't specifically mention any of these fringe groups here. So so I think it's safe to assume that he was more concerned with motivation than he was with content. That feeling is reinforced by what he writes in verse 18, which also gives us our third and final word, which is rejoice. Paul rejoiced whenever Christ was exalted. Even when he wasn't convinced that a preacher's motives were pure, he was happy to know that the gospel was being preached. You know, I'm certain that that Paul's status and reputation were a source of envy and jealousy for some people. There were probably some believers who were tired of being in Paul's shadow. Guys who watched him teach and and preach, but who secretly had the, the lead guitar player attitude. Let me explain that one to you. (laughs) It it comes from an old joke that that goes like this. How many lead guitar players does it take to change a light bulb? Well, the answer is eight. There's one to change the bulb and seven to stand around and say, hmm, that's all right, but 
I would have done better. The feelings of jealousy that, that come from not being the one in the spotlight can harden a person's heart. Their focus will, will only be on the fact that, that they're not the center of attention instead of appreciating the gifts and talents that someone else has been given. This attitude is especially heartbreaking when it surfaces in the ministry. As painful as it might be for us, it's got to be even more painful for God uh, when he sees envy and jealousy in his church. When Paul heard the reports that, that certain people had taken advantage of the situation, he could have done something about it. He absolutely could have done something about it. He could have told his friends that, uh, that he wanted them to put a stop to it. And because of his reputation and his status in the church, his request would probably have been granted. Yet Paul doesn't let his disappointment over the motives steal his joy. Instead, he takes the high road and expresses his joy that Christ is being proclaimed. Now, I, I will admit uh, to you all to having my struggles with this particular issue. And it all started after becoming aware of a certain televangelist slash faith healer who shall remain unnamed. I mean, feel free to guess, uh, but in the interest of avoiding gossip, I will provide no further details. Anyway, about 20 years ago, I was given a, a VHS tape. Yeah, it's been that long ago. I, I was given a VHS tape that contained footage of revival-style meetings that featured this particular preacher in action. Well, as I watched the tape, I felt very uncomfortable, to, to say the least. To me, it, it appeared that this man was taking advantage of people and, and that he was not presenting the gospel in a respectable manner. I was shocked at, at the level of theatrics and repelled by the things that came out of his mouth. He preached a health and wealth, name it and claim it gospel that was in direct opposition to what I was being taught. Well, I got all worked up about it, and, and with all of the righteous indignation that I could muster, I spoke to one of my professors about what I had seen. Well, you can imagine my, my disappointment when, instead of confirming and, and validating my feelings by responding with something along the lines of, yeah, Jim, we all know that he's a blight on the faith and he should be stopped. Instead of something like that, my professor recited Philippians 1.18 back to me. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. I didn't get it. I'll be honest with you, I did not get it at the time. And it took me years to understand my own blindness. To, to fully understand and realize that in my rush to judgment, I had left no room for the Holy Spirit. Those who, whom God has called, the Holy Spirit will bring to him. You know, I've come to, to realize that if someone hears about Jesus and they sincerely want to know more, the Spirit of God will lead them in the right direction. The, the Spirit will lead them to the pure gospel 
and to the real Jesus. And it's not just the, the high-profile TV preachers that are, that are presenting a different gospel. As you all know, the Mormon Church and the Jehovah's Witnesses actively engage in what they call door-to-door evangelism. Both groups are out preaching Christ, but it's not the same Christ that we worship. The Christ that is being presented by these groups is an altered version an altered version that suits their beliefs and doctrines. It's easy to be dismissive and maybe even a bit resentful over the door-to-door heresy that's taking place right in our own neighborhoods. So we have to take a breath and step back. Don't underestimate what God is doing here. It's a fact, a proven fact, that a certain amount of people because of the door-to-door evangelism, a certain amount of people will explore the Mormon faith and they will explore the Jehovah's Witness Church. But there will also be people whose path to the real Jesus will begin with an unsolicited knock on the door at 7 a.m. on a Saturday morning. Trust in the power of the Holy Spirit and rejoice when Christ is proclaimed. So, those are my three R's. Now what do we do with them? Not not to beat a dead horse, but God is in all of this. If we believe in an all-powerful, sovereign God, then, then we have to believe that we are exactly where he wants us to be. Now we may not like it, where we're at, but but that doesn't mean that God is any less present in our circumstances. On the contrary, as we have talked before, the shelter-in-place order may actually be an opportunity for some of us to grow in our faith and in our knowledge of God. Being home during the day is not the norm for many of us. You know, having a a more flexible schedule it may allow us to, to make some phone calls. And not just any phone calls. I'm talking about those phone calls that that get put off because you know, you know that they're not going to be quick and under normal circumstances, they're, they're really hard to squeeze into a busy schedule. Perhaps it's a friend or a relative that doesn't yet have a relationship with Jesus. Someone that you love dearly, but you also know that they are going to Talk your leg off if you give them half a chance. So, if you can, set aside an hour, if you think that's going to be long enough. Set aside an hour and make the call. And during the conversation, you know, drop a few hints about how the Lord has has been helping you deal with all the, the weirdness in the world. And at the end of the conversation... Make sure to ask if there is anything that you can be praying for them about. It's simple, and it's easy, and it serves to advance the gospel. Maybe you have some neighbors that aren't believers. Find ways to show them the love of Jesus. Start simple with, with things like uh, maybe moving their, their garbage cans back up into the driveway on garbage day. After, after they've been emptied, of course. Or 
The next time you, you sweep the leaves out of the gutter in, in front of your house, sweep the leaves out of the gutter in front of their house. These are not great, big things. But, as Mother Teresa said, they are small things done in great love. They're small things done in great love. Something that Tina and I like to do is share strawberries with our neighbors. We have a guy that comes around regularly selling flats of strawberries. Now, a flat of strawberries is a little box that has 12 of those green plastic baskets full of strawberries. And as much as we like strawberries, that's way too many for us to eat before they start to go south. So it's become our habit uh, to bring berries to our neighbors whenever we buy a flat. You know, we load up plastic bags with the baskets of berries, and away we go. You know, our neighbors love it, and it, and it gives us a chance to show Jesus in a very tasty way. As important as it is to let our light shine toward unbelievers, we can't neglect our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Now, I know that, that most of you have been staying connected with other folks in the church, but I'm going to ask something of you today. Something that I feel will be a blessing to you and a blessing to your church family. I'd like you to think of one person that you haven't talked to or have barely talked to since the, the lockdown commenced. Set aside a time when you can devote at least oh, 10, 15 minutes and give that person a call. Find out how they're doing, if they need anything that you can help them with. And, you guessed it, ask them if there's anything that you can be praying about for them. And, you know, we really don't have to be so deliberate either. Uh, we can all practice what I call random acts of kindness. Oh, here's a quick story that I, I want to share with you about that very thing. Way back in March, I posted on Facebook that my store had closed down and that everyone had been laid off. Now, most of you know I, I worked at Guitar Showcase, and for a guitar player, that was a really cool deal. This November, it would have been 15 years uh, since I started working there. You know, I felt fortunate and blessed to be there. I, I worked with my friends, and, and I was able to meet a lot of really terrific people who shared my love for music. Well, my friend, Derry Garlic, read my post. And in a random act of kindness, she brought me over some brownies that she had made. I'll tell you, I, I could feel the love of Jesus in every delicious chocolatey bite. Do you remember in the book of Acts, chapter 1, when the risen Jesus tells his apostles that, that they will receive power? That they will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon them and they will be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and into Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The picture there is of a pebble, right, being dropped in water and how the waves emanate from the point of impact. The love that we show to the world should have a similar pattern. 
See, the, the love of Christ flows through us, then to those closest to us, and then out into the world. Well, I, I had another thought about how to, to visually illustrate this point that, that I think was kind of cool, so I, I want to share it with you. I'd like you to picture one of those pyramids that they make out of champagne glasses. The ones where they start filling the glass on top, and, and when it's full, it overflows into the glasses beneath it, and when those get full, they overflow to the next layer of glasses until they're all full. Now, can you picture that? Now, what do you suppose would happen if the glass on top, the very first glass being filled, never reached the point of overflowing? That's right. Nothing else below would be filled. Now, imagine that you are the glass at the very top of that pyramid. Can you imagine that? Now, picture the love of Christ being poured into you. Can you picture the love being poured into you? I hope that you can. And I hope that you allow yourself to be filled because that's the only way that love is going to flow out of you and into someone else. Was that too corny? If it was, I, I, let me know and I'll talk with my writers. Love your neighbor as yourself implies that we are loving ourselves. And there is no better way to love ourselves than to allow ourselves to be loved by Jesus. To allow ourselves to be loved by Jesus. And finally, we need to try our best to seek out the most worthy objects for our attention. Even in the, the midst of all the madness that is around us, Christ is being exalted. And I wanted to, to provide you all with some examples to back up that point. So I used Google. I mean, I just used Google. One of the coolest things about the Internet is how specific we can be w when searching for something. I typed in Christian good news during the pandemic. And I would urge you to do, to do the same. It was very uplifting and encouraging to read about ordinary people doing extraordinary things in the name of Jesus. Here are just a few cool things that I found. In a small town in, in Vermont, the medical professionals were experiencing frustration over the delays in, in getting COVID-19 test results back. So, a group of small businessmen, out of their own pockets, chartered a plane to fly the test to the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. That's pretty cool. In Santa Barbara, California, a group of teenagers built a website that, that would allow grocery deliveries to the seniors in their neighborhood. And a woman who described herself only as an unknown mom a woman in Saverna Park, Maryland, makes free lunches for people. And she puts them on a table every day from 11 to 1.30. And there's a, a pretty big sign that assures people that the, the meals have been prepared with love in a sanitized kitchen. And that they have been, that they have been provided for anyone who is hungry. And there were numerous stories from all over the country about landlords who were forgiving rent payments and, and working with their tenants to keep a roof 
over their heads. Every one of those stories is a reason for rejoicing. Every time that a believer shows Jesus to the world, Jesus is exalted, and the world is better for it. You know, as I have said before, now is the time for the church to shine. The good works that have been started in us will go on. They will not be stopped by virus or or fires or elections. They will not yield to any opposition created by our circumstances. The love of Christ will uphold and strengthen us as we continue to do all that we can to glorify His name. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, let your glory be magnified over all the earth. We are weak and we need you. Help us to keep our eyes fixed upon the truth of who you are and upon the mission that you have so graciously called us to. Pour out your spirit, Lord, upon this church, upon this country, and upon our world. We want to be like you, Jesus. Give us hearts to serve our brothers and sisters, to do even the smallest of things with great love. Thank you for everything that you have done and continue to do in our lives. In your precious name we pray. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord be gracious unto each and every one of you. May the Lord turn his face to make it shine upon you and grant you peace. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I love you all. Please continue to stay safe, healthy, and joyful. And if there's anything I can do, no matter how small or how big, give me a call. And we will exalt Christ together. Hello, dear brothers of Blossom Valley Bible Church. It is great to be here with you again. Uh, Greetings from both Colombia, Cuba, and uh, Mexico. A lot of people we've been talking with have been spared during this time of COVID. So I have a privilege to share with you the Lord's Supper. And it's great to be with you in spirit, if if, if not face-to-face. So I'm going to take you back. And if you have the elements of the Lord's Supper with you, uh, please have them ready so that we can share together. Um, Let me go back to Scripture. I want to go back a little bit in history and bring us back to where, what, where things started off for the Lord's Supper a little bit. Um, you guys have done a lot of studies on this, so I'm sure you're familiar with these passages, but I just want to start with, with the fact, uh, we go back in history as I'm going back as well, um, the time of Exodus. We go back to Exodus and read what was going on in the, the people of Israel. We realize that God intervened in their lives in a miraculous way. And I point out some verses that will help us reflect during these hard times, these struggles that we face day to day with COVID and others, families of members have passed away and children who've been born in our family and other events in our lives really have put us through quite a, quite a pace lately. So I want to share with you how of God's people have dealt with this and how God has delivered them. As we look at Exodus, going back to Exodus and looking at Pharaoh and how he enslaved the Israelites through increased suffering and the Israelites moaned before the Lord and the Lord heard their cry, how he basically brought Moses to the burning bush where he was able to talk in this holy place to both Moses enable him to go to his people and to go to Pharaoh to share the news of what he was doing and to let them know that he had listened to them and he was about to deliver them. 
God empowered Moses in a particularly incredible way with miracles to go to go show God's power against the authorities that were before them. And the ten plagues, we remember very well the ten plagues and everything that happened during those times against the gods of Israel, against I'm sorry, the gods of, of Egypt, and how God basically came to them and showed them that he would be their deliverer. And it was great to go back and reflect on Exodus 11, 1 through 9, as God told them how they are to eat the Passover when they do the Passover. They had to roast this unblemished Passover lamb. They were to put belt and sandals on and uh, put a staff in their hand and also eat it in haste. It's incredible to see that God was showing them and preparing for them something that was about to happen and he was going to strike the firstborn of Egypt of both men and cattle. And it's great to see that, that no destructive plague will touch them because God had set up such a perfect solution. And this was to be a lasting ordinance. It was this, this Passover supper, this Passover meal, where this lamb, and in Exodus 12, Moses shares with his people how we are to go about this. And it's interesting to see that because at the end of it, he tells us, you know, not only do we take the hyssop and dip it in the, the blood of the, in the basin and put it on the, both sides of the door frames and on the top lentil, and no one is to go out of his house until the morning, it says, you see that the Lord will come through and you see blood on the top and on both sides of your door and he will pass over the home. He says he will not permit the destroyer in the last part of 1223 of Exodus. He says he will not permit the destroyer to enter your house and strike you down. And observe these instructions as a lasting ordinance when you enter the, uh, the new land. So it's great to see how God, in the midst of the struggle, in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the, of the troubles that they're having, how God listened to his people and how he restored and he brought a solution that would deliver them from their persecutors. How great it is that we are those people. As we look at 1 Corinthians 5, 7, it says, For Christ is our Passover lamb. He has been sacrificed for you and I. It is his blood, his perfect blood sacrificed for us that stands as an everlasting testimony that, of what is to come. And that we call is our blessed hope. And that's what we're doing today when we get together and, and eat this Lord's Supper. How great it is that we can have a an eternal hope in Christ. The return of our King, as we know so adamantly, will happen because we are sure of this. And it's great to see as we read. I want to go through and just uh, uh, take a moment to examine ourselves as we transition to taking the Lord's elements, to share the Lord's Supper together, that we would continue to do the things God wants us to do. He says, He says, having believed, you were marked with Him the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. Our inheritance to that which is to come and is ratified again here in the Lord's Supper. That Christ, our Passover Lamb, would not see us to see wrath. And it says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 through 11, it says, For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So you think of all the troubles that are to come, even the, 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 wrath, the, the wrath that is to come in the end of times. And we know that God will deliver us. Are you sure, my friends, of what is to come? For God wants us to be on guard, to stand firm in the faith, be men of courage, to be strong, and to do everything in love. That's what God wants us to do in these days. And we thank you for those that are persevering and doing these things. For God is good. He says, Jesus, he says, while we were still eating, Jesus took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take this and eat from it. So I'm going to bring the Lord's elements out and realize that God is this perfect Passover sacrifice for us. So let's take and eat this body as I just read, that he is the bread of life. 
It says, then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them. So I thank you, Lord, for what you've done in Christ Jesus this day. I remember you today. He says, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood, the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let's partake. He continues on in Matthew 26 is where I was reading Matthew 26 uh, Matthew 26 26 of the Lord's Supper he continues on and says I tell you this is Jesus talking in tw verse 29 I tell you I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until the day that the day when I drink it anew with you in my father's kingdom how great it is to realize that in the future God will restore his kingdom here on earth he will bring heaven to earth as the, the, the saying goes that God will restore all things unto his Son, who will rule in love and truth over us. So take heart, my friends. Remember that we are justified by his blood. How much more shall we be saved from God's wrath, as it says Romans 5, 9 through 11. So indeed, it, was a, it is a privilege to continue to share the Lord's Supper here at Blossom Valley Bible Church with you. Enjoy your week. Have a great day. And praise our God for his faithfulness, for he is our blessed hope, our great Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Come on, make a joyful noise.